the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we're discussing what we're drinking, what's happening in the wine industry, uh, which is really quite hefty this week. Anyway, I'm one of your co-hosts, Marsha Maycumber. I am here today with Olga Messina. Hello. Hello. Olga is actually a guest co-host today uh, because our other co-hosts are out on assignment this week. So, Olga, I really want to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. So honored to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you with us. It's a really big help. And we've also got Elizabeth Tangne. Did I say it right? Tangne? Tangne. 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 All right. I got to get it right. Uh, Director of Viticulture uh, and Vineyard Management and Winemaking at Cornell Vineyards. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we want to get, we want to take care of some of our housekeeping information first, which happens to be, of course, this beautiful location that we get to record in every week. We're in the private tasting room, the loft at the panel wine lounge and beer tap room and espresso bar all here in downtown Sonoma. It's a beautiful home that's been converted into a wine lounge and there's even a wine shop in one of the rooms uh i suspect i don't know maybe it was a dining room or a bedroom at some point this is just an adorable little house that's been turned around and has this european feel to it uh, for those interested who haven't been here before they are open tuesday through friday 3 to 9 p.m saturday 12 to 9 p.m sunday and monday are by appointment um, they have an, an adorable wine shop that specializes in carrying West Coast wines as well as uh, a lot of global brands from Germany, Austria, France, Italy, Portugal, all the way around to down under uh, and over to New Zealand. So really covers the globe in um, the types of wines that they carry for sale here as well. And they have a wine club that's international that's very cool. They have a panel that meets every single month of experts. They blind taste through several wines, uh, and the winning wines are the ones that go into the club offering every month. So uh, pretty cool style. Uh, you can find all of the information about this at panelwines.com on the Internet. So very easy to find and definitely easy to enjoy here in the loft at the Panel Wine Lounge. A um, few things on the news side. Uh, Olga was with us to celebrate uh, Wine Women's third anniversary and completion of the judging of the 12th annual Women's Wine Competition. It's tradition by now. It is a tradition, and we had a lovely time at the celebration. Um, we should mention that the annual Women's Wine Competition in their 12th year had more than a thousand entries this year, which was pretty spectacular. They had seven best in show awards that they gave out, 45 best in class designations, and 203 gold and double gold medals that they gave out. So uh, you can obviously tell from that list that there's quite a balance and you know, it, it's not quite like kindergarten where everybody gets to go home with a trophy. Um, but there were a lot of great winner, winners at that. And I want to mention that the Woman Winemaker of the Year Award this year 
went to Jamie Benziger of Imagery Estate Winery in Glen Ellen, California. So big round of congratulations to Jamie for winning that award this year. I understand that there were just a lot of really terrific wines at that, which was great. In some other news this week for the industry that um, since we focus on uh, helping women accelerate their careers on the wine industry, here is one action that I think will make a difference. The CEO of Constellation Brands, that's uh, Bill Newlands, he's President and Chief Executive Officer, he actually joined the CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion, which is the largest CEO-driven business commitment to advance diversity and inclusion within the workplace. Now, considering how big Constellation is in terms of the alcohol beverage industry overall, that's a pretty good uh, sense of commitment that he signed on to that. More than 600 CEOs of the world's leading companies and business organizations are leveraging their voices to advance diversity and inclusion in the workplace by placing individual accountability on all leaders and employees to create inclusive environments. So I think that is a huge and wonderful step forward that uh, Constellation is making. Uh, what did you want to add to that, Olga? Well, I was particularly intrigued by their uh, training and education uh, offerings mm -hmm. at the company, and in particular the unconscious bias training, which um, kind of highlights this issue, how we promote and hire people uh, making quick decisions uh, that are based on stereotypes that are very deeply ingrained, that are very... Um, automatic and mm -hmm. unintentional, but in the end they um, favor a specific person or a group of people or uh, go against a specific person and group of people and are considered unfair. So um, you know, examples would be that we hire um, a man because, or someone from a particular university because we think that you know, that university is good and I've gone to that same mm -hmm. university and so um, that person must be good. Um, <laughs> okay, there's an easy one. That's an easy one. Or, you know, hire based on a name that someone has an right. um, Anglo name or a black sounding name or a Latino sounding name. And then we think they're specifically good at right. a thing. Um, and so uh, I'm just wondering, I'm really intrigued by what they will uncover uh, in, in that is specifically related to the wine industry in terms of this unconscious bias. Well, one of the things in their press release that they mentioned was that um, they wanted to continue enhancing female perspectives within the business and to include more voices, insights, and viewpoints that reflect the company's consumers. So they said approximately a third of Constellation Brands' leadership positions are held by women today. Yay. Uh, and we in need the last, to have. Yeah. Uh, and in the last five years, the company has doubled the number of women in senior roles. So a real strong um, sense of progress there. Uh, they support development of women through the Women's Leadership Development Program in innovating pro products that resonate with female consumers. So they have a program within the company um, to help women advance forward, which I think is a really strong sign. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad that you mentioned the unconscious bias because the one in the industry that always strikes me and this is only one of many, is, oh, we have to ha hire a man, um, you know, for uh, seller supervision because he's the only one who can lift and move the hoses. Uh, Elizabeth, 
Would you like to comment on whether or not men are the only ones who can manage to work in the cellar? Hoses are not really that heavy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I actually had a question to Elizabeth. Um, so one of the unconscious biases could be that a piece of equipment or the layout or the setup of the winery is actually geared to your average male, which may perhaps been the assumption about winemakers. Is there anything that you've ever needed to adjust, to redesign, to um, maybe use, use or not use a specific piece of equipment? So in my experience, women have to be more creative about how they work. Mm -hmm. We can't use brute strength. So men can just heave something and lift something. Mm -hmm. But women can leverage things. But, but women have to just <laughs> think and, and use your knees and leverage a barrel onto a rack. So mm -hmm. I've never had an issue. Mm -hmm. I've never not been able Bravo. to complete a task. Yeah. Very and good. I don't know what the why people say it's it's a man's world in the cellar <laughs> <laughs> the one the one thing we've heard from uh, a guest on a past show um, was forklifts um, where the position of the seat is too low or too high for the height of the woman um, mm. to properly see over the end and that was from a, that was from a woman whose father had bought the forklift that she was using um, and finding ways to, like you said, get creative about how to use it. So yeah. I imagine they are designed for men. That makes perfect sense. But yeah. I've also never had an issue. So, And then the last bit of wine industry news that we wanted to talk a about a little bit today has been the enormous news that just came down, which was the su Supreme Court today announced that they struck down the Tennessee liquor sales law. Now, for listeners who might go, well, what's that? And what does that have to do with me? Um, here, here's the, the basic bottom line on this. Um, the law that they struck down made it harder for outsiders to break into the state's liquor sales market. Um, specifically, what it was is that a family that moved to Tennessee because of their daughter's disability um, and also a national chain that had nearly... 200 liquor stores in 23 states wanted to begin doing business in Tennessee. There, the Tennessee Liquor Board law, uh, I forget what its name, regulatory body, uh, insisted that there was a two-year waiting period and that they needed that two-year waiting period um, to do various background checks and a bunch of other things. And essentially, the court said, bunko. <laughs> That's not a valid enough reason for that. Um, Justice Samuel Alito wrote in his opinion for the court that states have considerable power to regulate the sale of alcohol, but they can't discriminate against out-of-state interests. The predominant effect of the residency requirement is to protect Tennessee liquor sellers from out-of-state competition, which was not deemed a good enough rule for doing that. Um, Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch wrote that the 21st Amendment left the regulation of alcohol to the states, and that was the reason for their dissenting opinion on that. Um, all of this began because the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association opposed the issuance of licenses to Doug and Mary Ketchum, who were the ones who moved from out of state, and also to Total Wine Spirits Beer and More for a store in Knoxville, Tennessee. So now they will be able to participate. Um, but what does all of this mean for consumers and for retailers? 
Well, Tom Work, who is uh, well known as an advocate for uh, more more free traffic of, of regulation, shall we say, um, that states should not be able to discriminate, said that um, the Supreme Court's decision that state alcohols that discriminate against out-of-state re- retailers for the purpose of protecting in-state interests are unconstitutional and not protected by the 21st Amendment. The decision is historic because it promotes both free trade and wine consumers across the country. Because let's say, for example, um, since it was about Tennessee, let's say the wine that you want, you live in Tennessee, and the wine you want is available at a retailer in Kentucky, uh, but they couldn't get their, they couldn't physically get the wine across the border to them, consumers would not have access to the wine they wanted. So this is going to change, I think, quite a lot about what's going on uh, in terms of retailers' access through states. I'm just guessing, but we will soon see um, a lot more cases state by state Mm. um, wishing to strike down the other current laws in other states that prohibit access for consumers to have to out-of-state retailers. Um, that's my just my personal guesstimate on that. Olga, is that what you think you'll see? <laughs> I've taken an <laughs> economics class at university, and I think there is one rule that every student firmly remembers, that competition is good, fair competition is good, and uh, trade barriers and protectionism are bad. Uh, and that's primarily bad to consumers, to us, because we have less choice and we end up paying more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any measure that takes down those barriers um, and that removes protectionist meather- measures, um, I salute to that. Whether there will be a need for other legal moves to remove, um, to li- to remove um, uh, barriers to out-of-state mm-hmm. and across-the-state shipments, I think... Um, we should ask a lawyer, someone who is um, uh, really reading into that. But I believe there. We'll bring it's him on one another the, show. I, th- I believe it's one of the one of the steps, but yeah. not not the final one. Yeah, 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 probably true. Elizabeth, anything you are, are you astounded? Were you were you waiting for this decision, or you're like, not not my bag? <laughs> I'm just I wasn't curious. holding my breath, but I do think it's interesting and and always good when we can access consumers in other states. There you go. That sums like better access for consumers right. is better for the industry overall. So. And it would be interesting to explore what happens to wineries that also have retail licenses uh, at some point, there right? I, I'm sure there mm-hmm. will be analysis right. done on that as well. Right. Very interesting. Very cool stuff. Well, we uh, we want to go ahead and, and that, that's the end of our industry news for the week right now, uh, at least what our highlights of industry news. Um, what we do want to move on to is Elizabeth, our guest, uh, Elizabeth Tangney from Cornell Vineyards, um, a very, very cool place that I didn't know anything about. Um, Elizabeth, tell our listeners a little bit about where it can be found and how you first connected with Cornell. So Cornell is located in Santa Rosa, California, in mm-hmm. Sonoma County, and we have a beautiful mountain estate um, 240 acres at the top of the Mayacamas on St. Helena Road. Mm -hmm. And we sell our wine directly to consumers. So you can purchase through our website. You can always find it there. You can also find it in restaurants in various, um, in California, New York, and Texas. Mm -hmm. And um, I first discovered Cornell 
um, when a good friend of mine was working there and mm -hmm. he decided to take a different opportunity and um, called me and asked if I would be interested in coming up and maybe taking over for him. So, wow. You know, I had no intention of taking a new job at that point, but once you go up to the property, it sort of gets in your blood and you, just you were sucks swept you in. in. Yep. It How just cool. it takes takes a hold of you and it, it feels like home wow. now. Wow. Mm. That's really cool. Do you only make cabernet there? We make a Cabernet-based wine, mm -hmm. which means we also grow um, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, and then we will be putting some Merlot back in the ground. Very nice. Very cool. cool. So I want to make sure listeners caught a, a couple of ideas of where they can go. First of all, uh, on the web, cornellvineyards.com. That's right. Really easy to find. And while you mentioned that it's 240 acres, most of it is still wild. That's right. It's completely natural wildland, except for the homes we have on the property mm -hmm. where our vineyard crew lives mm -hmm. and the 20 acres of vineyard that we have planted. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very small amount, of, a small amount that is actually cultivated, um, which I just think is the coolest part of the whole thing. Um, that, and is, is it the owner's intention that for the most part they want to leave the rest wild or, or is that unknown what the plans are? No, that's exactly right. So when you look at the property, it's uh, rolling hills. It's just these very small locations where you could plant vineyard blocks. So most of our vineyard blocks are 0.2 of an acre up to 0.5 of an acre because we're just taking the flattest, most easily farmed mm -hmm. knolls of the hillsides and putting them under vine. And we don't really have the opportunity to expand much more because pretty drastic up there wow the slopes <laughs> i was gonna say um what's what's the steepest that you're dealing with that's actually cultivated i don't know the exact grade but when you're in the tractor it's pretty straight down <laughs> i was gonna say because i i work with somebody who's got his some of his steepest cultivated areas 30 degrees mm -hmm. and um it's also extremely narrow in its planting so it's only four and a half feet yeah. apart for the rows so um he has to use what I would consider to be something the size of a home tractor. Uh, and it requires some pretty significant um, front end weight to be put on it so that the tractor does not um, slip or flip on the sloping. Um, what is, what's your row spacing that you're dealing with in your blocks? So we have anywhere from six foot to mm -hmm. eight foot. Okay. So, so most of our vines are under six foot rows. So it's pretty tight. It is um, tight. We've got a cross arm, so that tightens it up a little bit too. Uh -huh. So we have some very good tractor drivers. Mm. Yeah, abso absolutely. Very necessary thing to have. Uh, so how long has it been uh, under cultivation? I suppose we should back up a little bit and tell the story a little bit about um, Henry and Vanessa Cornell hence the namesake of the vineyard right. um, and how they find it. They actually live most of the time on the East Coast, right? They do. In fact, um, Henry Cornell, the mm -hmm. primary owner, he's coming out today. I think he just landed. So <laughs> they come out very he's often. He's going to be your next stop connecting exactly. with him. <laughs> we have dinner later on. So, um, but Henry purchased the property 20 years ago and there were uh, historic vineyards there. There, were, there was evidence of vines before mm -hmm. he purchased the property. But when he purchased it, there were no active vineyards. Mm -hmm. So he spent roughly 15 years developing the vineyard, um, 
dialing in the farming, dialing in the plant material, figuring out how to produce one great wine from this property. So that took him a long time. But in that process, he met his wife, Mm -hmm. brought his wife to the property, proposed. Um, and since he's had five children, so he's okay. So it's working. Uh, he's just <laughs> he has this great life, and when right. the family and the kids come out, it's like summer camp mm-hmm. at the property, and there's children running around, getting collecting chicken eggs and playing with goats, and it's just right. a really fun place. Right? How beautiful! What what a lot of fun to um, to deal with. I, I just I think that's really very cool. Um, y- y- go ahead. Sorry. You you said that he uh, Henry wants to produce one great wine, right? And so that's that's the whole philosophy of the winery: just make one wine, no no others. That is the goal. Wow. So he has this amazing land that he values and that he wants to cherish for generations to come. He hopes one of his children will find mm-hmm. the wine bug and be interested. So while he's, he's got five to choose from that's now, that's exactly so. <laughs> right. Maybe one will take. So from this beautiful land, he wants to make one beautiful wine. Mm. That's quite unusual for for Napa and Sonoma, isn't it? It is, but there are, I think, a number of family wineries like Cornell um, that have this kind of singular focus. They're they're really good at drilling down. Um, and I and Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this vague memory of re- reading the website that Henry had a, a fair amount of experience with wine himself already some time in France. Uh, yes. So Henry travels quite a bit there. Uh, he fell in love through experience, through through drinking, consuming and, and learning about wine. His wife, Vanessa, also fell in love with uh, learning about wine through her family. So they both bring this passion for wine. And they drink a lot of European wines, mm. which part might be part of the inspiration for the mm-hmm. one great wine. So that's and the Bordeaux varieties that you grow and exactly. cultivate and make into this beautiful wine. And we should mention we are drinking this gorgeous, gorgeous Cabernet blend. I wish you could all smell it. It <laughs> smells it's heavenly. Yeah. This is the Cornell 2015. Tell us about this wine, Elizabeth. Sure. So this is our current release. And actually today when we poured it, I could immediately smell the aromas just fill the room. So yeah, we opened it and poured it right before we turned on the mic. So it's really fresh and it's opening so beautifully in the glass. So we have an amazing property for Cabernet and for Bordeaux varieties because we have all this sunshine. We're on the top of the mountain, but we stay very cool, meaning when the valley floor is... 90 degrees we're only about in the low 80s Mm. so it's this perfect ripening for cabernet we get this long season we don't have any heat spikes that push alcohol Mm. or push overripe flavors so for us we like to make a wine that's food friendly we make a wine that's got all these dark fruits red fruits this lushness Um, but we also like to include in that a little bit of tea a little bit of herb and we walk that line of what cabernet was historically which is a combination of the fruits and the herbal side right yeah and then we're also from a mountain we're from a giant rugged mountain Mm. and so we have tannin in our wine and we're not afraid to have that texture and have that structure and really make this wine that's going to age and that's shows this rugged land that it comes from what's your estimation of the aging potential i mean these wines are packed with so much concentration Mm. and so much density if keep it 20 years it'll be fine depends how you like to drink it but 
Go ahead. Drink it now. Tuck it in the cellar. Buy more. Whatever. I, I just want to say, I mean, it's it's full of complex, dark mm. red red to black fruit flavors. You know, when you when you get it first on the nose, there's a whole panoply of red fruit and floral notes aromatically on this that are quite beautiful. The color on this is this beautiful ruby, but you but it's also very dense. This is, um, you know, you, you cannot see through the glass. So it's clearly an opaque uh, Bordeaux variety, um, uh, red wine, Cabernet based. Uh, the, the tannins are there and the acid is there, but they're perfectly well balanced. It they're will go a smooth, long time. Even, yeah, for the long, new long finish. So as you're going through the mid mouth feel mm. and, and all through the palate, it has this long, lingering taste. And you, you get a whole bunch of different hints from plum to blackberry you get a little red red cherry up front black currants too i think Mm -hmm. and a bit of mint and and rosemary Mm -hmm. that's what i've been i was admiring on the very beautiful yet simple and elegant label design uh, a little it's kind of a coat of arms but it's not really a coat are these uh cranes here for the cornells tell us a little they are cranes Uh, okay. So there's two adult cranes. They're beautiful. A, a pine tree in the middle, mm-hmm. a plum vine, and five baby cranes, which you'd probably need a magnifying glass to see. They're but, they're on the ground below, so you'd right. have to work uh, for the family. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. I love it. It's fantastic. It's a just a really beautiful expression. So what are some of the winemaking challenges you face up working in the mountain turf so to speak yeah so um we were dealing with some today uh we're organic so that commitment to being organic i i'm so proud of the owners that they have that commitment because you need that support organic farming can be more expensive it can be more difficult so we have that strong support from the cornells and that means we have challenges with weeds yeah everywhere like in a year where you get five inches of rain in right May. especially <laughs> to the um, so you have to adjust your vision of what a beautiful vineyard looks mm-hmm. like mm. so 10 years ago 15 years ago a beautiful vineyard was one with a perfectly cleared berm under the vine where nothing grew which should have been a red flag right away because you're trying to grow something there so our vineyards have grasses and they have cover crops and they have flowers and and we have adjusted our mindset to what is a healthy vineyard so that's always a challenge though to keep to keep on top Mm -hmm. of the weeds and make sure that they don't outcompete our vines or grow up into our vines the second thing is is uh timing our practices so that we can avoid different mildews or um, issues in that way so we have to be perfect in our shoot tucking leaf thinning we have to be perfect in our irrigation and all these different practices so that we keep the vines as healthy as can be because we don't have a silver bullet of a strong fungicide that we can just put out mm. and have it taken care of. So there's challenges every day. But we just have to be perfect in our yeah. farming. Mm. We should mention um, Elizabeth has a very long history as a vineyard manager as well as being a winemaker as well. So. Um, you're kind of unique in having that experience in both areas of boots on the ground on a regular and often daily basis, as well as in the cellar and what you want to create out of a wine. 
Uh, let's back up a little bit, talk a little bit about organic for some of our listeners who may not know uh, what kind of additional problems that you can run into. So the first thing you mentioned was weeds. Well, you know, you go, well, okay, so that's not so attractive to have weeds. But the other issue with weeds, of course, is they're competing for water. Mm-hmm. You, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, why why we get rid of some of these things and try to, you know, keep kind of a balance between what you do let grow because it helps your erosion control, but then at a certain point, you don't want to have all those things there. So for me, the biggest problem are any weeds that grow up into the canopy or any broadleaf deep-rooted weeds. Those are an issue, but aside from that, I'm pretty comfortable with weeds because to me, it, it shows a sign of a healthy soil. These weeds are, are doing something to our soil. They're mm-hmm. creating microbial life and that helps cycle nutrients. So I like to see weeds. I like mm-hmm. to see roots and cover crops and healthy green things growing in my vineyard. So while we have to go through with shovels or weed whackers and manage that, my guys are probably a little bit luckier that I'm pretty <laughs> lax about it. Well, the other thing that happens, of course, is when you do go through with the weed whacker, um, presuming that you're not removing all of what you've whacked off, um, the nutrients in those plants is going back into the ground again right. to help out the vines. Well, and often we, when we let our cover crop grow really large and then mow it down, it acts as a mulch. And so that really helps with soil moisture and keeping mm-hmm. the soil cooler and keeping the microbial life up. Right. Very, very neat stuff to have that because it, it makes a big difference. Uh, so another area that I wanted to hit on um, with all of the organic and different elements, mountain vineyards are a little different because of the isolation. You know, you're often in tiny little valleys and little flat areas or you're at the very top and dealing with that and your neighbors are often kind of literally masked away from you because they're on the other side of a ridge or something like that what are some of the unique things that happen for you guys you know being a mountain winery and vineyard um that you balance out you're near pride that's another one of your nearby neighbors but still not super close uh, obviously, you had to contend with the fires, which we've gotten past for a while, and we're crossing our fingers and knocking the wood on the table here under the microphones that we don't have to do that again. What, yeah, what you, else are you dealing with with nature around you? You must have animals also to contend with. We do. So you've kind of nailed it. We are between Pride and Fisher, um, but quite a distance from both, and when I have an issue in the vineyard, I don't have neighbors to peek over in their vineyard and say, is this happening to you too? So for instance, this year, um, we had a very cool spring last spring, Mm -hmm. and that's when fruit development for the next year is happening. Mm. So because it was cool and because uh, we didn't have a lot of high heat and temperature, we have a lower crop this year. So when I started realizing that, I was thinking everyone must be seeing this. But no, not everyone is because I'm a microclimate. <laughs> so we have cordon and cane prune vines, and it affected the cordon slightly more than the cane. And one other ranch has cane and cordon uh, okay. nearby, and they have seen the same thing. So mm. at least I have a little confirmation. But I'm like an island out there, and mm. I have my own issues, and I don't always get 
the satisfaction of running to a neighbor and saying, this is what's happening, let's talk about it. So, so it's interesting, it's always fascinating, I have to stay on my toes. Yeah, I imagine that's really a challenge, particularly when you've, when you've moved from one location to, uh, to another. Now, you've been with Cornell, is it two years now or more than that? Um, going on two years. Okay, going on two years. So, so this, is, this is where you're looking to see what, what patterns repeat and which ones don't. Right. So a real challenge. Now, let's, let's back up a little bit because our listeners don't necessarily know your whole background. Um, you were with St. Helena Winery before this. Um, uh-huh. It wasn't the only thing, but that was your immediate last uh, role where you also were winemaker, vineyard manager there as well. Right. And they are Valley Floor? Right. Big difference. Uh, 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 you know... Do you remember anything that, like, when you decided to make the leap, uh, that you went, oh, I had totally forgotten about this difference between mountain fruit and valley floor fruit? Well, hiking's a lot to... harder out there. <laughs> <laughs> so you um, don't need any extra exercise. No, you get it automatically with no, your work. I canceled the gym membership, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I've had a history of working in smaller hillsides in, um, well, quite small hillsides in Paso Robles, but... It was a hilly vineyard, and um, I've worked in France. I've worked in Sonoma County before in hillside vineyards. So really, the valley floor was the change for me. And you know, it, it's just so so much easier. It's it's flat. <laughs> it was wide spacing. It was hot. So you just could kind of coast. And now you have I have to use all my tools in my toolbox to mm. farm grapes and get the best mm-hmm. quality. So it's nice to be back to the hillsides because that's where I'm a little bit more familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the challenges, it, you know, keeps you clocked in. Yeah. So you've also worked prior to that time in uh, Saint-Emilion and um, Paso, Paso mm-hmm. Robles. Um, anything come to mind in terms of the differences between all of these different environments for growing wine? I'd say the main difference is temperature. I mean, everywhere, all the places you just named have extreme different temperatures. So that's how you farm the, the fruit zone and the canopy and how you irrigate. It's just so different. I mean, every vineyard is its own unique hmm. microclimate that you have to figure out. And so it's like a puzzle and you're just trying to put all the pieces together. And every year is different. So the puzzle pieces are always changing. <laughs> Can, can you talk a little more about your work uh, in Saint-Emilion in Bordeaux sure. in France? And I'm particularly interested if this French experience has changed uh, for you any ways to look at winemaking or vintage management or approach it. So I did a harvest over there. And mm-hmm. um, for me, the biggest surprise when I went was they were so systematic. Hmm. This is what they did. They did it to every tank. It was seemed so much more thought through. Hmm. And so based on... Uh, years of doing similar things mm-hmm. when I had come from Paso Robles which was kind of the wild west back then mm. we were doing things because we thought it up the day before <laughs> we were doing experiments <laughs> and so in France it was just much more systematic right. and so I think I've brought some of that with me and, mm. and been more diligent in my fermentations mm-hmm. and um, think through it th- more and, and I'm more deliberate mm-hmm. but I also have some of the Paso Robles where it's like let's try this right how, how old was that French uh, winery? 
Um, uh, it was pretty old. It's a small family winery. Mm-hmm. It was actually the uh, brother-in-law of someone I worked with formerly in Paso. Mm. So it was nice to be in a small right. uh, winery, small cellar, and I was trying to solidify my French at the time. So it was <laughs> great ah, to go down as well. <laughs> yeah. So I had studied it for a long time and um, little did I know I'm studying Spanish now. So mm-hmm. it's not really helpful. Yeah. For other reasons that uh, we all need in the wine industry as yes. well. Was it in, in Bordeaux where your fascination, I assume, with Bordeaux varietals was born or was it um, some other Yes, time? it was over there, but also I had studied French since... Mm-hmm sixth grade so that's how i fell in love with wine the pace of the european lifestyle the french lifestyle mm-hmm. the ability to sit down and have a meal without mm. watching tv or right. doing yeah. all these yeah. things that americans sometimes fall mm. to and i just fell in love with that i fell in mm. love with you know going to the store getting a fresh baguette having a bottle of wine and cheese and that's right. like literally my lifestyle <laughs> so. And yeah, hey, you still continue with that. Exactly. Right. I, right. I love it. Just because we're here doesn't mean that that has to change. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a great thing. Uh, from a career point of view, um, it, it is common to you know, test out harvests at various areas um, to, to further your education. But once you really got into the workforce and were working your way up, one of the interesting things we found in talking with different women in the wine industry and to help them with their career development moving forward was what were the signals at each place you've worked kind of internally that said, it's time for me to find a new place to jump to? What were some, what were some of the things that made you go, I'm ready for my next challenge and it's not going to be here, it's going to be someplace else? That's a good question because I haven't left very many jobs seeking a new challenge and I let me qualify that I left my job at Paso Robles which I loved and I was learning a lot and I was not tired of but they didn't pay very well Hmm. and um, I wanted to go to France and I thought if I don't do it now while I'm young I'll never do it so I left to do that Mm -hmm. and then when I came back I took um, a position at a vineyard and then that Vineyard sort of went through some changes, mm-hmm. and um, it was time to find a new position. I mm-hmm. took an internship at Bryant Family Vineyards, so I had a lot of changes that um, sort of came to me. Right, external changes. Exactly, yeah. and um, my one focus the whole time was I I had studied viticulture, mm-hmm. but I knew that the winemaking was so connected. So one of my goals was always learn the vineyard and learn the winery. Mm. So I've been mostly assistant vineyard manager, winemaker, mm-hmm. or vineyard manager and winemaker my whole career. Mm. And um, doing those things connected has always found me unique opportunities. Mm. So at Cornell Vineyards, it is a 20-acre vineyard that needs a vineyard manager or needs a director of viticulture, and it's a winery that needs a winemaker. So I can do both. That makes me uniquely suited. So that's helped a lot in my career. Very cool. Very nifty. And uh, you know, we should mention another very cool and highly unique feature of Cornell is you are all led, uh, uh, you are a team of women running the winery. There are not very many of those out there where... I found one on the website in addition to the owner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is correct. And then our vineyard team. 
and the vineyard team, and right? They, they are men, so <laughs> so there so there you go. So you have uh, Melinda Kearney, who's the brand developer, yes. the whole thing. You also work with uh, Francoise uh, Pichon. Yep. Do I say her her name pronounced correctly? Um, any interesting stories there that you want to share? What's it like, uh, you know, having this whole women autonomous environment? Has, has there ever been two cooks in one kitchen? <laughs> um, well, we do make lunch a lot, so from that scenario. Um, but it, there's always the the pre-meeting sort of social catch-up. So it's hmm. it's an it's a nice environment. I mean, these these people are women, but they're just really genuine interesting successful people so it's fantastic that they're women but beyond that they're smart and we have this brand that we're creating together so we have this opportunity and when Mm. we get together for meetings and we have our our one token office guy austin uh it's just a fantastic group and Mm. i i wish we could so he gets to be the the sole lone guy out on the whole thing he (laughs) likes when we bring the vineyard crew in so he can feel more at home Oh goodness! So that's that's an interesting story. I have to say, as I continue to sip this fantastic Cornell 2015 Cabernet Estate uh, blend that you have here, primarily Cabernet. Yeah, so it is actually a Cabernet Sauvignon. There's very mm-hmm. tiny bits of the other varieties mm-hmm. blended in, so it keeps evolving. It does in wonderful, wonderful ways. More and more fruit. Just it's like a. It's like a flower petal, flower in the morning, where as the sun rises, the petals keep opening and opening and opening to catch the most, I presume, of the sun's rays. So poetic, Marsha. <laughs> I don't know. Just It comes to but mind. It's true. Not it's a beautiful wine. I mean, all, all kinds of uh, red fruits, currants, blackberry, um, tiny hints of mocha, uh, the one thing I first noticed about these wines when I was introduced to them is how much the aromatics, the, the layers and how much it evolves. Mm. So it's, it's almost yeah. more enjoyable to smell the whole time, but yeah. it's talk, really wonderful. Talk about what you like to pair this wine with. What do you like to, what foods do you like to pair with this wine? I like all foods. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very picky, but, uh, I mean, I, I think that the wine pairing thing is fantastic when you have someone that just really dials it in. But for me, if I'm interested in a Cabernet, I'll drink it with anything. And this this wine, it walks the line of being a little bit greener. So you can mm. have it with a lighter dish. And mm-hmm. it's not high in alcohol. It's mm. not heavy. Right. So it doesn't need a steak. Right. It, it stands up to one, mm. but it you don't. that's not the only thing it pairs right. with. How so. much alcohol does it have? We like to keep our wines in the low 14s. Mm. Yeah. So approaching 15, it would Mm. be just way too high for us. Well, there are a lot of foods I can think of, but uh, Olga, I want to give you, you're you're quite the food pairer with wine. Any particular ones come to mind with this wine? We actually, we like to experiment, and and I totally agree with with Elizabeth that you could try. It doesn't have to be just steak and hard cheeses with this wine or anything like that. Um, um, I would have i don't know i'm thinking because i think i'm getting some earthy aromas in that as well so like it would be great with mushrooms mushroom can, risotto or something. can you oh, yeah can you imagine mushroom torta yeah wonderful combinations mm-hmm. um i want to say uh game meaty game dishes yeah, would wonderful. be fantastic yeah. with this uh, and we just had a great cassoulet yesterday wouldn't it be nice <sighs> to 
pair it with duck and some, exactly. some French sausages. But, it, it, but during the summer months, I can easily see some fun things like grilling skirt steaks. Yeah. Um, it would go just... I've, I've actually had that pairing with this wine. Mm. I mean, it would be stunning with that. Right. Um, also, e- easily kebabs. Mm. Uh, any combination of kebabs, this would be fabulous with. And A lot di- of Mediterranean foods, right? Oh, yeah. many, many Mediterranean foods. Just have this foods. whole table of food. But I could also see, for instance, the little, you know, medallion of a filet mignon. Mm. You could go that route with this, with a... Uh, uh, you know, a wonderful glazed sauce so to mm. it as well. Um, just so many different opportunities with this. I like that it's not your sort of typical big, mm-hmm. hot, big Californian uh, Cabernet right. that has been sort of a, right. um, a stereotype. And <laughs> I, would, I would even be willing to put out there that if, when you were talking about the light things, you could even do a fantastic salad with a beet oh, base yeah. to it, um, you know, that uh, with like a, you know, maybe a reduction sauce mm. uh, as the dressing yeah. that would be really kind of stunning for this. Mm. I mean, so many, many <laughs> different choices on that. Uh, Elizabeth, I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, we try to get in some career development um, advice and news. Um, you now work primarily with an all women team, although you have a, a male owner um, to answer to for the most part. Um, but what tips do you want to ha- hand on down to uh, men and women uh, considering joining the industry uh, and getting their degrees and what they might want to do and maybe, you know, wh- what things you learned in hindsight? So I don't know about men so much because I haven't <laughs> been a man in the industry. That, but That's a good, that's okay. But for women... Um, <laughs> I think work hard and don't be afraid if you don't have all the answers. Learn how to get the answers. That's been one of my strengths this whole time is I don't know everything. And I've been young in my career for mm-hmm. most of it. Right. So um, You're still young. You look very you young. You're still quite young, yes. <laughs> well, and you don't know everything when you're right. young, so you have to find out how to learn it and how mm-hmm. to figure it out. So I've always done that. And then... The last piece I would say is don't be afraid to ask for what you're worth. And mm. when you think you know what you're worth, add 45% and Ooh. then ask for that. I love that no- wow. exact number. Wow. I'll use it. <laughs> so I think that <laughs> that's, it's important <laughs> for us. We don't do enough of that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I have, I have uh, I've read some other lines and what Elizabeth was talking about earlier um, that could be a good advice, and correct me if I'm wrong, I might be reading um, my own thoughts into that. Mm-hmm. But also pick a niche. Uh, I understand that Elizabeth has decided that she wants to do vineyard management and winemaking, and has also followed on that route and like gaining more experience and right. stayed in, in that on that path, and I think that's important. And I think learning French and practicing it, isn't that something that kind of helped you to uh, to get into Cornell? I mean, your French experience with the owner who's traveled extensively mm-hmm. and knows international wines and are working with a French consulting winemaker. I mean, I, um, I think yeah, all actually. of this kind of falls together to me very neatly that, you know, there are other additional skills that you never know when you can use them, but... That's a good point. <laughs> Just Francoise is actually yeah. from Luxembourg, but um, oh, right. and Henry uh, I think was more attractive to the vineyard and the wine knowledge. Right. But that's exactly right. I did get 
position in college because the owner was French and I spoke mm. French and it, you know, you have something in common. Mm -hmm. yeah. So developing yourself outside of your career and having interests and having things that you can relate right. with people mm -hmm. is very important. That's unconscious bias that is actually working in favor. <laughs> I love there it. There you go. Yeah? Olga is on fire with this concept here. <laughs> yeah. You gotta keep going with that. Um, I, I'm glomming onto that at 45% on one of, to your, you know, your, while you're ne negotiating there, one of the things we run into, uh, as women in the industry, women in any industry is how well do we value our own skills, uh, and productivity and what we bring to the table. And this goes back to issues of the gender pay gap. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly that 45% would help get us onto the map uh, at, at a greater pay equity level um, that has been there historically. Uh, in general, this is broadly stated, women are known for having a harder time for negotiating what they're really worth. Um, anything come to mind, particularly in your path, um, where you've had to remind yourself I'm going for it and this is how I'm going to do it. Anything yeah, all the time. I mean, asking for raises or, or throwing out a salary number, that's hard. It's hard to imagine your worth so much, but guess what? The guy next to you is doing it and he's doing it easily. <laughs> hmm. So you have to channel that yeah. more. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've had great mentors. I've had female mentors, male mentors. My most recent mentor helped me, um, negotiate many different positions, but hmm. you know, having someone you can go to ask them what they would mm -hmm. ask for, mm -hmm. what they think it's worth. And especially having that male point of view and mm. then, and then working with that number and f trying it on for size, getting mm. comfortable with it and then asking <laughs> for it and not, you know, you can hear no, but guess what? It's not the end of the world. Right. Oh my goodness. So you just throw it out there mm. and then actually there's one more piece that you have to do after you throw the number or after you negotiate something and ask for something, mm. you have to be silent after that. Mm. You have to let it sit in the room. Yeah. So if I like for anybody advice. who's ever had any sales experience and even if you haven't, you're going to need it in life. And that is the most important thing is when you're putting out your clothes, that's your clothes right there is to shut up. Yeah. Mm. And don't talk yourself anything. out of it. Don't talk them out of mm. it. Just be quiet. Wait for them to, uh, despite the agony. Mm. <laughs> It could be hard. That's amazing. So it's an important step to do. So uh, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time. I want to make sure that our listeners know you go to CornellVineyards.com to learn more about Elizabeth's wines, that she manages the vineyard as well as the director of winemaking at Cornell Vineyards. Uh, you are positioned on, what did you say, St. Helena Highway? On right? St. Helena no. Road on the Road. top of the Mayakamas Mountain. There you go. So a little bit west of the Spring Mountain AVA. That's right. So uh, really up there, uh, smack in the middle of the mountains, um, tucked we away. 360-degree views. Um, oh, I'll tell you a little bit more about the property. I don't know if we've covered Please. it all. So on the 240 acres, we have uh, three homes where our, our vineyard crew lives. Mm -hmm. um, they have We have families there. We have animals there. Mm. So... Uh, one of our guys has quail and pigeons, and they mm. have quail eggs, and they um, raise them. Uh -huh. And our, our actual vineyard manager, I'm the director of viticulture, our vineyard manager has goats. He has a horse for his daughter. Mm. He, has, um, he has had cows. 
think he has one right now. We have chickens there. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the winter, when the vines are dormant, we bring those goats into the vineyard and they eat grass and they fertilize. And it's it's quite fun. It's very, all, it's very sound of music. <laughs> um, and then we have a beehive on the property, which has been a whole new skill that I've gotten to learn. It's fan- oh, wow. fascinating. Beekeeping. Exactly. And then we also have 150 olive trees. Mm. So we make olive oil oh, from do. the property. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, so and is that available to your customers? We just do gifts with that. Very so nice. if you come visit yes. us, um, ask about the olive oil and we might have some. Let's make sure we talk a little bit about allocation or club because I'm not sure which route you, you go with Cornell. Talk a little bit about that. So since we make the one wine, um, we are in our f- we're just coming up on our fourth release Mm -hmm. and so um we will be sold out shortly so we do an allocation list okay and um we email it out you're not obligated but you have the opportunity to purchase Mm -hmm. and um we hope that you do and and when it's sold out it's sold out how much do you make what's your production we are growing towards a thousand cases but we're just under that so it's quite small and sold out yeah that makes that makes absolute sense with that kind of production exactly and uh is it possible to visit the property um, we do educational vineyard tours, mm-hmm. but we're not open for okay, wine Okay, not open the to the public. So uh, your best bet is to go to cornellvineyards.com, and uh, you can find the contact information there if you're absolutely dying to find out about the quails and the goats and all the other organic practices that go on. So Elizabeth Tengne, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been great to have you with us and learn about Cornell Vineyards and this beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon that is produced Uh, by you. Thank you for the wine. Yes. And thank you for bringing it. It was absolutely fantastic. Listeners, tune in next week. We'll have another guest with us talking about uh, their winery and the vineyards and the wine industry. Thanks for being with us.